Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good afternoon. Um, uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Um, for those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Um, I will begin by introducing um, our moderator and panelist, uh, Hashem Meki, and then he will introduce the other panelists. Uh, Professor Meki has taught Arabic language, culture, and Middle East media at IWP since 2012. He's the owner of Bridge Language Solutions, providing an array of language translation, interpretation, and teaching services to the, to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, and the founder of Kiwi Global, a nonprofit organization that promotes education, health, and economic empowerment in the Sudan and the Republic of South Sudan. He also teaches Arabic language to federal employees and professionals with the National Nuclear Security Administration of the Department of Energy. Mr. Meki volunteers with IDP Center for Human Rights and International Affairs by providing Arabic translations and strategic cultural perspectives on North Africa and Middle East. Mr. Meki previously worked with the Center for Strategic and International Studies and serve on the board of Voices of Sudan, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. He holds a bachelor's degree in both political science and international studies from the City College of New York, and a master of arts in strategic studies and international politics from IWP. IWP. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mickey and the rest of our panelists today. Thank Anna, for this introduction. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is going to be our uh, first uh, event uh, series on Africa, so I'm encouraged to see this uh, number of people who are interested in the subject of uh, Angola. And to start, I will introduce uh, the panelists, and then we would have them uh, provide a few remarks, uh, followed by uh, maybe a couple questions, and then we'll open it up to the, uh, to the audience for questions. So please prepare your questions, and don't shy away from asking questions. We would want this to be as lively as possible. So I will start with uh, my friend and former colleague of mine, uh, Florendo Shavkuti. I went to school, uh, as Hannah mentioned in the bio, at George uh, Mason. So Florendo Shavkuti was my uh, colleague. And uh, Florinda Shimokuti is the founder and executive director of Friends of Angola and uh, Radio uh, of Angola, which is an online radio station. And he's an activist and a blogger and a digital media specialist. Florinda earned his master's degree in, in conflict analysis and resolution from George Mason University and has over five years of experience working in nonprofit organizations and international development as well as international relations, peacekeeping, and education while being active in the community of Portuguese-speaking uh, countries in the United States. Since founding Friends of Angola in April 2014, 
he has led the design and implementation of four projects in Angola. Radio Angola, an online radio station hosted by him, and strength, uh, that aims to strengthen uh, and looks into non-violent civic engagement among the youth. Strengthening democracy in Angola through community journalism, and he also has a program, as well as application, which is a pro-democracy and social uh, network and smartphone app focused on fostering good governance, er eradicating corruption, monitoring elections and human rights violations, and more. All projects were envisioned as part of a larger theory of change uh, to strengthen the capacity of civil society, empower women and use while promoting nonviolent uh, civic engagement by using new and existing technologies in Angola and the South, uh, the South uh, Western African region. These projects were funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. Florindo has also ex uh, experience on higher education, uh, worked also as uh, education support specialist and international student advisor at Northern uh, Virginia University College and at the Pennsylvania State University. So please join me in welcoming Florinda uh, Shifukuiti. Our next uh, panelist uh, to the uh, further uh, left is Mr. Malik uh, Shaka, who is a retired U.S. government official who served as director threshold programs for the Millennium Challenge Corporation and as a professional staff member with House Africa Subcommittee. <coughs> he first visited the Angola Marcus as a journalist in 1973, uh, prior to independence on November 11, 1975, and traveled widely in the country over a four-decade period. Mr. Shaka was uh, written, uh, Mr. Shaka has written, sorry, on Angola topics for the Times of uh, Zambia, uh, Zambia Daily, uh, and also London-based Africa analysis. He testified before Congress on Angolan government of national unity. Mr. Shaka uh, served as, as the director of communications for the Free Angolan Information Service for seven years and produced and edited Angola Updated uh, and Angola Economic Notes, two international distributed newsletters. He was a member of Council on Foreign, Relation, uh, Foreign Relations Independent Commission that issued toward an Angola strategy prioritizing U.S.-Angola relations in 2007. So please join me in welcoming Our last panelist, uh, Kira uh, uh, Garney, is a reporter for ICIJ. She, pr she previously worked at the Miami Herald and at Inside Crime, a nonprofit journalism uh, organization based in Colombia that covers or organized crimes in Latin America and the Caribbean. At the Miami Herald, Kira was part of a team uh, investigating the illegal gold trade for a series called Dirty gold clean cash uh, which was a finalist for the 2018 uh, pulitzer uh, prize for explanatory reporting she also covered education and local government kira has a master's degree in journalism from columbia university and a bachelor's degree in comparative literature from colorado college she grew up in Albuquerque, new mexico so please join me in welcoming uh, kira Now that we've introduced our panelists, we will uh, uh, welcome Mr. Shifukuti to start us off by uh, providing a few remarks about Angola 
but also uh, the recent development in terms of uh, the political process, but also the corruption uh, issue that has been uh, the part of the the reporting that we'll cover more in details. Thank you. Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you, Ashim, uh, for the um, very good introduction, and, and uh, thank you to the Institute of World Politics for hosting us, and thank you for everyone for taking the time and, and coming and join us uh, uh, as we're trying to uh, really unpack all these issues in Angola, in particular the, uh, the endemic corruption system and the political process uh, that we're trying to build in Angola. Um, so uh, let me take a second uh, and just uh, share with you uh, about Friends of Angola. Uh, Friends of Angola is this nonprofit that was created by a group of grad students at George Mason in 2014. Um, when I came to US, uh, there, there were few Angolans that would be willing to talk to me because the Santos. They, they, not too many Angolans like to would be close to you know or be related to me. So I like to say the Ethiopians uh, um, they adopted me in US. <laughs> so uh, and 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 so that was a group of grad students from Ethiopia, Ghana, from the US, all over the world. I brought the issue before them, and, and they said, well, we're going to help you this, and and we're going to make sure uh, once again we can we can have Angola. Uh, as a topic to discuss from time to time, uh, so it's not forgotten after the Cold War. Um, so Angola was, uh, Friends of Angola was created in, in, in 2014, and since then, like uh, Mr. Shim alluded to, we have implemented five projects, we are on six. Thank you to National Government for Democracy. Um, but when we created Friends of Angola, we had something in mind. We understood the, the scope of the issue in Angola. And one thing we, we, we knew is that the, a single organization or individual is not able, is, cannot solve the problems in Angola. We needed to build a coalition uh, of individuals as an organization and build a really strong civil society in Angola in order to, to, to really start to uh, mitigate a lot of those uh, issues, in particular the endemic corruption. Uh, and, 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 and start building a strong civil society and, and democratic process in Angola. Um, so with that in mind, uh, in the past few years, we were able to create a, to build a coalition of individuals and organizations uh, and be able to be uh, present not just in Rwanda, the capital, but uh, in, in almost all the provinces in Angola. Uh, we, the, our recent event was creating a, a number of town hall meetings uh, throughout Angola to discuss about the upcoming local elections. Um, so, the, I mean, the, the Angolan civil society still remain extremely weak. Um, uh, and uh, Mike Okara will, will definitely talk about the, 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 the Rwanda leaks that um, <clears throat> just came out not too long ago. But we all know that corruption is not new in Angola. Angola is extremely, there's extremely corruption in Angola. I've been three times in Angola uh, last year. Um, and it's just everywhere, it's present everywhere. Uh, and, and so, and we know that, that the Angolan government will not be able to solve that itself, even if they have the will to do so. Um, 
So we, what I, I guess as we discuss uh, this issue of corruption, them corruption in Gala, and, and the, the, the fragile uh, democratic system that's being eroded by the, the corruption, and, and I really would like you to please feel free to share uh, either today or some other time, how can we help build a strong uh, democratic system in Angola? Uh, I, I mean, really, it's because, uh, I, so one thing, if I could paraphrase Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, quote, a threat to democracy anywhere is a threat to democracy everywhere. Um, uh, we know that the money that has been uh, stolen from Angola, billions of dollars, it's eroding not just democracy in Angola, but in Portugal as well. And it, it could be very well be used in the US as well. So it's, it's not an Angola issue. Uh, it, it's, 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 it should be seen as a world issue where any democratic system could be affected by a corrupt system. And, and we want to make sure that uh, we help building a strong democratic system in Angola. Hopefully, uh, we can protect our democracy at home uh, as well. Thank you. Hi. Well, thank you, Florinda. Uh, thank you for this remark. I would love you to elaborate more on how do we build a, a strong uh, democratic uh, society given the uh, issue of corruption. So if you can elaborate more on that, that would be great. Sure. <clears throat> so I, I, I just I just finished reading a book of Professor Georgi Ayete. Um, it, it took me a very long time. I have I have an eight years old son. He keeps me very busy, <clears throat> and in between travel, the Angola. But one thing, if there's one thing I learned from that book is, and I, I could relate to Angola to the question that uh, my co uh, my colleague Mr. Shin just asked me. Is that in order for us to bring uh, to build a strong uh, uh, democratic system in Angola? Well, first of all, we'll, we'll take some time, but the time is really defined by the efforts of almost everyone, uh, either within Angola and uh, the individuals in the group who are willing to uh, change the, 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 the status quo. So there's no the, the textbook doesn't tell us it's take ten years or twenty years. It can took it can take less or more, but really the things depends on. Uh, how, how, how fast we are in terms of building this coalition of, uh, of, of individuals and organizations who are willing to uh, build a strong democratic system in Angola. Uh, and, 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 and the reason why it's important, because it's also related to the peace as well, and I think we can, we can work with, not, with youth. Uh, Angola, the majority of the population make up are youth. Um, so we have the youth bullshit issue. But if we don't work with those folks, it, it can be a blessing or it could be a course. Uh, but to go back to the question, I think we, if we empower those young uh, um, activists in Angola, which we have done to some extent, but we have to do more. Uh, and, 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 and I know through YALI, the Department of State has been uh, training folks on, on leadership programs. Um, but if we can join forces, uh, and because the, the issues are so great, as so big, as I said, not to repeat myself, 
It's no issue that can be tackled by a single individual or a single organization. If we can join forces and we can persuade the, the current administration in Angola that it's on their own best interest to have a democratic system so we can have a, a country where everyone uh, is, can, can freely speak about issues without fear in their lives. And, and, and that also will be able to have a, a stable, peaceful country. And I'm sure we can achieve, achieve that. Uh, there are countless number of individuals who have been working daily and night, either here in the US or overseas, to, uh, to make this dream come true. And I think that if we keep work on it, if we just keep work on it, and, 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 and I'm sure that uh, the Angola will be a different place once we meet again, five years from now, or two years from now, and we're going to be talking about a completely different issue, uh, just like the Ethiopians are doing right now. Um, and and that's, that's what I'm hoping for. And, and I hope, I'm not sure if I respond to your question. Oh, thank you. We'll uh, open it up later, and then maybe we'll get more questions to clarify. Uh, now, can we hear from um, Kira, uh, Kira's organization had uh, a report by the title Luanda Leaks, and I believe this uh, report is timely because it tackles the issue of uh, uh, Isabel de Santos. And for those who do not know who Isabel de Santos is, she is the uh, daughter of the former uh, president de Santos. So, can you take it from here? Thanks. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Um, so before I talk a bit about Luanda Leaks, I wanted to talk a little bit about the organization I work for. Um, so the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists is a nonprofit. Um, we were founded in the late 1990s and we're based in DC, but I have a lot of colleagues who work around the world. Um, and we're a group of journalists and also um, developers and data experts. Um, and our goal is to work on big global investigations that we don't think one media outlet can tackle on its own. So we have media partners, we have over 100 media partners all over the world, and we work with them so that we're all um, collaborating on these investigations. And I think ICIJ is probably best known for the Panama Papers, if, if you're familiar with that. Um, but ICIJ has also done some leaks that are specific to um, Africa, the West Africa leaks. Um, and also some, some sort of more traditional investigative reporting. Um, one example would be implant files, which was an investigation into the lack of regulation in the medical device industry. Uh, so that's just sort of a, a broad overview of our organization. Um, but so we um, obtained about 700,000 uh, documents from an organization called the Platform to Protect Whistleblowers in Africa. And these documents um, all deal with the business empire of um, Isabel dos Santos, who, as you mentioned, is the eldest daughter of, of Jose Eduardo dos Santos. Um, and he was uh, a president, but also, I think most would say, an authoritarian ruler um, who was in control of Angola for about 40 years. So for this organization, we um, teamed up with about 36 media organizations in 20 different countries including a number of journalists in Africa. Um, we had a, a great partner in Angola named uh, Carlos Rosado, who's a well-known economic reporter there. Um, we also worked with um, Le Monde, the BBC, New York Times, um, Expresso. We had uh, several media organizations that partnered with us in Brazil as well, because there were a lot of ties between um, Brazil and Angola. Um, and we spent about eight months working together on, on this investigation. 
Uh, we used an, an application that's actually open uh, for, for use called um, DataShare that our developers had developed. And with that application, you can search all of these documents because otherwise it would take years to go through 700,000 uh, leaked documents. So you can put in search terms and find all of the documents that have to do with a particular person or a particular project. Um, and then we also have another secure platform that we use to communicate with our media partners. Um, so I think there had, um, there had been a lot of reporting on Isabel Dos Santos. So she's a woman who has amassed a fortune that's valued at over $2 billion. Um, and she did so through a lot of businesses in Angola and outside of Angola while her father was um, the president of a country that's frequently ranked as one of the most corrupt in the world, as, as you mentioned. Um, and there's been a lot of excellent reporting by an Angolan um, activist and journal journalist named um, Rafael Marquez. Uh, but for whatever reason, I think maybe there was some information that, that was just missing in the public domain or it wasn't getting a lot of attention. Um, but Ms. Dos Santos was still you know, often invited to very prestigious events. Um, this year she was supposed to attend the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. And, um, and for whatever reason, she was still sort of able to, to um, promote this narrative that her fortune came entirely from hard work and from her business savvy. Um, so what we saw with our media partners going through these records um, was that under, the, uh, under her father's rule, um, Ms. Dos Santos' companies were awarded all sorts of public contracts, um, tax breaks, telecom licenses, diamond mining rights, consulting jobs, you name it, you know, her one of her companies got uh, one of these deals or contracts. And she was also put in place as the chairwoman of Sonigal, um, which you probably know better than I do, is um, really the, you know, an extremely important and, and wealthy comp state-owned company, it's a state-owned oil company in Angola. Um, so we were able to, with our media partners, go through all of these documents and sort of map out how she had amassed her fortune with a lot of help from her father. Um, and we were also able to identify uh, more than 400 companies and subsidiaries that she and her husband own. And a lot of these companies um, are in what we would often call tax havens or offshore secrecy jurisdictions like Malta or Mauritius. And these companies enabled Ms. Dos Santos and her family to, to move a lot of money out of Angola. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're interested in, in reading more about the, um, the reporting, our organization is icij.org. Um, but there we have a lot of examples of, um, of the types of business deals that we were able to see in the documents. Um, and I think one thing that really stuck out to us was that a lot of uh, very prominent Western consulting and accounting firms and law firms were, um, were willing to work with Ms. Dos Santos' companies despite the fact that there have been a lot of questions about the origins of her wealth for many years. And they just didn't ask a lot of questions. We can see in emails and so forth in the, the leaked documents that they weren't really um, scrutinizing her to the level that they probably should have been. So. Thank you. Thank you for your remark. And of course, uh, prepare your questions. Okay, now we would uh, uh, turn it over to uh, Shaq and uh, maybe you can tell us about what's next for Angola and also, if you can, what the U.S. policy ought to be vis-a-vis Angola. Thank you. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, talk about the importance of the work that was done by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists until relatively recently in Angola. To talk about corruption was to criticize the ruling party, the party that's been in power since 1975. So therefore, it was, it was off limits. Um, 
things have begun to change. Gentlemen who had been the president of the country since 1979, uh, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, uh, retired. He's now in Barcelona, where he's receiving medical treatment. Um, and when he left office, the last thing that he thought would happen is that the members of his political party would come after him. A bomb was dropped in Angola uh, by the, the International Foundation for Investigative Journalists. And the shock waves continue to date. In Angola, you want to have a situation where the Angola leaks is going to have an impact on upcoming presidential elections, upcoming local elections. Things that people on Angola thought were going on in terms of corruption, they now, in fact, have the evidence. The real question is going to be how the government, how the ruling party responds. Will they use the documents that are now available to do uh, a far-reaching forensic analysis? This becomes a, a question. One of the things that I'm sure of is that civil society and opposition parties in Angola will raise these issues, and the evidence that they will present will come from the Uwanda leaks. So I think folks in Angola will be focusing on this. My, my question is, what will the USG do? And I think that this is a critically uh, important question. I can remember just uh, a few years ago where there were people here in the administration who saw Ms. Isabel Dos Santos as a, a good thing when she took over as the chairman of the board of Sonigo State Oil Corporation. In fact, the piggy bank of the, the, the country. I don't think people at this juncture would say that uh, in State Department. The question I, I'm going to raise is what will the State Department and USG do to assist Angolans to find out information? And will we, for example, as the USG, folks are awful quick in this day and age to come up with sanctions. Will there be sanctions that come from Luanda leaks? Based on the information that's been amassed so far, it seems to me that there are people in the Angola government, people associated with Mr. Santos, who are, should be persona non grata in this country. If you're saying that somebody can't come, those folks should be on the list. The other thing that I'm hoping will happen is that the U.S. Congress and the relevant committees, whether that's foreign affairs, I'm hoping that they will hold, in fact, uh, hearings because this information, in fact, needs to be spread uh, further and further and further. 
it needs to become an issue here. The United States has a special relationship with Angola. We have three strategic dialogue partners on the African continent. One, South Africa. Two, Nigeria. And three, Angola. So what you're saying, when you have just three countries on a continent, 54 countries with, that you have this privileged and special relationship with, um, you need to be concerned about what's going on in the country. How will this relationship be used to, in fact, move this legal process forward? What kind of technical assistance will the U.S. government play in helping the Angolan government get control of the system of corruption there? You have the Department of Treasury, for example. Um, that could be a great assistance. USAID could be a great assistance in providing the kinds of skills and systems that the Angolan government would need in order to deal with this issue. I'm just going to say um, one more thing before I shut my mouth, and that is I hope that the U.S. government will, in fact, be supportive of civil society in this effort. Sometimes you have a, a situation, and I speak to somebody who spent significant amount of time on the on Capitol Hill as a staffer. You'll find that the executive branch has a privileged relationship with governments, which it should have, but sometimes they shut out civil society. I'm hoping that what happens in Angola is that you'll have a full-blown discussion of this that would include political parties, civil society, and even church organizations. And in the context of Angola, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, is an important organization. Uh, I'm going to stop at this point and turn, turn, turn the mic back. Thank you for your remark. Uh, so, if we can open it up for Q&A and explain more on these remarks, that would be great. So please raise your hand and maybe we can pass the mic to you and you can ask your question. Thank you. received these documents um, unsolicited and it's now uh, become public the um, the source of those documents has publicly disclosed that he's the source of those documents and it's a gentleman named um, Rui Pinto who's well known in Portugal for the football leagues um, so he from what I understand um, obtained these documents while doing some of his investigations related to football leagues um, but from what I understand there's a, a law firm in Portugal that um, was doing some work for Mr. Santos and also involved with some of the football leagues um, stuff. So yes, and I think there has been, there have been a lot of conspiracy um, theories in Angola, but um, 
ICIJ gets its uh, funding um, strictly from foundations and individuals who donate. So um, our funders don't actually have any say in what kinds of projects we do. Because um, I think there's a, a conspiracy theory in Angola that we were um, paid by the Angolan government or that you know they provided the documents to us. But um, but Mr. Pinto has now publicly disclosed that he was the source. So when you say FIFA league or sorry football leagues, are you saying like FIFA was uh, FIFA was was a, was the tie into this? Um, no, so um, I think Mr. Pinto had been um, had some documents that related to a law firm in Portugal that um, just coincidentally also had done some work for Ms. Dos Santos. So from what I understand, that's how he um, came across these documents. Hello, my name is Martina Perino, and I come from the International Republican Institute. I am very sympathetic to this cause of uh, corruption. I'm originally from Mozambique, so I really understand what uh, my colleague goes through on a daily basis. Um, so my qu I have a hundred questions, but I will not bore you with all of them. Um, the, the, the people of Angola know that Angola is corrupt. This is not uh, uh, news. Um, so what, what is happening in Angola? And how are people digesting this information? Um, so, um, somebody in the panel said that this will have an impact on the elections as well. Well, it's news, but it's not fresh news for many Angolans who feel this on a daily basis. So what do you think the, the effect will be? And how are people in Angola feeling about this? Besides the conspiracy theory, of course. Um, and my second question is uh, related to investing in democracy. Um, why is this a good time to invest in democracy in Angola? What, what is the spark there now that the US government and everybody should be jumping on on this opportunity? Thank you very much. I have my own answers for that, but <laughs> I want to hear from you. One of the things I think we need to understand is that there have been some changes in Angola in recent years that have been pivotal events. The end of the Civil War with the death of Jonas Gimli was a pivotal event. Um, recently, President João Lourenço uh, gave the leading opposition party permission to bury Jonas Savimbi, who had been lying in a grave for uh, 18 years, perhaps. This helped to bring the nation together in terms of national reconciliation. You also have a political ferment where people, you have an authoritarian country in Angola. I would argue that it's less authoritarian today that you'll be harassed, maybe put in jail, but you don't have the kind of physical elimination of people going on that took place when Kamalengi uh, and... Uh, yes. When you had people who were just being killed uh, by the government. When is this? The, 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 the assassination of two activists uh, the assassination of two activists uh, might. The, I, I don't recall the, the date, but the Department of State Human Rights Report state the those two assassination. But um, I can also get back to you in regard to, to, to that. Uh, West of America has reported an yeah, issue yeah. as well. But it's been a while now. Yes, yes. When you say a while, um, we're talking about within the last five, five, years. five, five years. Five years, yes. yes. And for me, that's not 
It's a process that's going on now. The good thing is that they haven't killed any people lately. They beat up some people. Um, they put some people in jail. But the you don't have that same murderous edge at present. This government is more attentive to human rights than the previous one. Is there room for improvement? You bet there is. But it's not the same country that it was under Jose Eduardo de Santos in reference to the issue of, of, of corruption. Because <clears throat> um, here's a situation where they're now talking about putting <clears throat> on trial the daughter of a former president. Yeah. That was inconceivable. Nobody thought anything like this would ever happen. And since Mr. Dos Santos selected Joao Lorenzo as his successor, nobody thought that Joao Lorenzo would then turn around and go where the truth took him and put pressure not only on President Dos Santos' daughter, Isabel, the princess, but also his son, uh, Zainu, who was the head of the Sovereign Wealth Fund. So some positive changes, but they need to be accelerated. You have important events coming up now. You have local elections for the first time in the history of the country. And then you have national elections coming up in 2022. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And with the possibility of alternates taking place. And that was not a possibility up until this time. If I could just add um, to the uh, first question. I, I, so Angola is very unequal society, extremely unequal. And because of the economic uh, crisis that Angola living right now, extremely high unemployment, so people are asking more questions than before. They really want to know, like, I mean, what is the beef, right? I mean, really, this is a country that extremely, extremely wealth, I mean, in terms of natural resources. But people are struggling. I was there, and I saw it. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. So, so, and then, so that's, in part, that's what it is. Uh, the employment rate, it's more than 55%, probably higher. Uh, so that's 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 the, the the economic crisis. That's perhaps in my in my opinion is actual uh, uh, allowed to raise more questions. Uh, but the, so the system didn't change. Change the president, but the system remained the same. Just to make a distinction, very important distinction. Uh, change the president, but the system remains the same. Uh, and and the, the the reason why I believe it's the best time to invest in democracy in Angola now. Because Angola is just like a time bomb, if you will. Um, so the, the, the Al-Shabaab, they are recruiting. In Mozambique, it's a problem already. Uh, Angola is just a matter of time, in my opinion. Uh, so it, it's really a fertile ground for recruitment. High employment, no lack of access of uh, education. I mean, it, it's just with, uh, if my memory says me well, Al-Shabaab is paying $10 per, per month in Nigeria. <laughs> This is all. So it's very dangerous, actually. Um, and the, the, the government needs to do more in order to, because it's that push and pull, if you will. They're always looking for a place to recruit. 
uh, we, uh, in DRC, we heard some rumors going on. Uh, so it's not really an Angola issue. It's really more than an Angola issue. We need to pay attention to it. And that's why we, we should invest in democracy also, because we have a president who he needs to win the Angolan sympathy, the Angolan sympathy, because so the, there is a, the, 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 the party is fragmented right now. It's not very popular within MPLA, but it's not very popular within Angolans outside the political party. So he's trying to win the hearts and minds. So and probably we could, we could, we can work with him if he's willing to and and make some uh, positive change. That's just my opinion. And if I could argue to make uh, another point, um, corruption is only part of the problem. The problem in Angola is in fact governance, which is much broader. It's much broader. And this would have to do with the political situations, whether there's a level playing field. It would have to do with economic management. Does the government have policies in place that would lead to investment and lead to growth? Uh, this would also be taken. So for me, it's governance, which is much, much broader than corruption. Okay, next question, please. Um, the, the young lady right there in the middle. Thanks. Thank you. I'm a journalist from the Portuguese news agency, so I say hello to everybody who is from Angola, from Mozambique. I was in Portugal when this exploded about uh, the ICIG. So I wanted to ask that um, uh, Isabel Santos, she said that she will sue the reporters that are doing this, and the ICIG. Uh, what do you make? Uh, is this like a legitimate defense? And what is this attack on the press? Um, how does it influentiate the um, image of Angola trying to combat corruption? Sure. Um, yeah, those are good questions. Uh, so I think um, as reporters in Washington, D.C., we're very fortunate that we don't uh, face the kind of pressure that uh, a lot of our colleagues and our reporting partners do around the world. Um, so we haven't uh, personally been impacted, um, but I think part of the reason that we like to collaborate with um, on these big investigations is that we feel like there is sort of some safety in numbers and it, um, our reporting partners in Africa, for example, have the support of knowing that they're working on this investigation with other media outlets in countries with better laws that protect um, press, press freedoms. Yes, thank you. Um, I was wondering, what is the role of international influence in facilitating this corruption? Specifically, I'm thinking of China and Russia, but it, you know, any international actors. And then, what can unite? What policies should the U.S. implement to uh, reduce corruption? Right. At the same time, do no harm, not not further cause turmoil or negatively influence uh, domestic <clears throat> politics within the country. Who want to take this uh, question? Um, well, so the, the, the reason why Isabel and men, uh, government and government officials were able to sack the country and send the money overseas was, wasn't alone, it was the help of, unfortunately, including the U.S. 
companies like PwC, I mean, I mean really powerful firms that aid those individuals to steal billions of dollars. They're not doing it alone. Now, uh, I think they have done tremendous harm, there's no doubt, uh, but can, can we undo on, on, on some of this harm they have caused? Yes. Can the national community play a role? I'm very realistic, and I like to believe that um, it's probably, so it's not really, it's not really the U.S., well, let me put it this way. The old states are out there operating first and foremost of interest, right? But we live in a globalized world. Today, not too long ago, I think a few days ago, there's a newspaper, local newspaper reported, there's Angolans who travel all the way from Angola to travel all the way in South America to come to U.S. And, and I think if my memory serves me well, five three of them have died, drowned, crossing the river. Um, so, I mean, so, yes, the U.S. has a lot of tools, the international community overall, like the World Bank, IMF, but also the U.S. Has, government has a lot of tools on the toolbox in order to preempt some of this money laundry. I'm sure the U.S. can stop. And the U.S. have done some work, I mean, to be fair here. Uh, the, today, the, the the Federal Reserve is not selling dollars, as far as I know, to Angolan government. Uh, it has been going on for years. I think four or five, if my memory serves me well. Because of corruption, money laundry, large, large scale. Now, can the U.S. do more, like Mr. Malik has alluded to, uh, turn into those individuals, some person no longer? Absolutely. Uh, they can. The international community can also make sure we don't have companies like the company in Spain, Sindra, basically aiding the global government to rip off the election. So I mean, so so there's a lot of things that the international community can do, in particular, including the U.S., uh, in order to preempt a lot of those issues that, to some extent, end up being our problem in the U.S. And that includes it's corrupt, and that includes immigration. Folks who are dying trying to cross, I mean, really, I mean, no one border, not two, but, but few borders, and, and, and just losing their lives because the Angolan government failed to do what it's supposed to do because the money has been stolen. Yes, can the IMF can probably be, or the World Bank can be more open in regard to the loans that they are giving to the Angolan government but also tell them to be more aware of uh, human rights, democracy uh, in Angola? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, 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 they don't answer questions. We have contacted them. They, the deals they are dealing with the Angolan government are, are opaque as the Chinese government. Just there's no transparency. That's unacceptable, and that's taxpayers' money. Yes, thanks. Uh, John Fox, former State Department, former World Bank, and various other things. Um, a couple of questions. One, have we seen, uh, as, as in a wide range of countries, uh, where we've seen the corruption issue as the catalyst for demonstrations, youth-led demonstrations, 
um, society-wide, or certainly crossing ethnic and sectarian and previous socio-political boundaries. Have we, are we seeing anything like that welling up in, in Angola? And secondly, just to press a bit on this point about where the U.S. actually stands now, uh, certainly in you know, going back decades, um, as, as I'm sure many in this room know better than I, the, the um, trench warfare on Angola policy and the seesawing uh, has, been, has been notable. Um, does the, are there factors now, including maybe the self-sufficiency self or relative independence of the U.S. on energy, um, other factors that uh, change the dynamic with respect to U.S. policy uh, to where it was three, five, ten years ago? One of the things that, uh, in fact, happened was it was the youth of the country which began to hold demonstrations on human rights uh, issues. And you had the famous trial of the 15 plus 2. I don't think anybody in this group was 30 years old. You had from teenagers up to about 30. And the whole nation was had their eyes on these people who said, I'm going to hold the demonstration at Kinoshishi Square. Well, you don't hold a demonstration at Kinoshishi Square because you could end up getting hurt. This small group of young people made this the issue of, of governance. So they contributed, even though their focus was at that time human rights. They started a study group. And this included rappers, Duwati Goral, uh, another fellow by the name of uh, Nito Alves Jr. Um, it was students who helped precipitate this. And you now have a situation where the government says they want to turn over a new leaf. President Joao Lorenzo has been able to come up with a political bureau and a central committee that is more supportive of him. So on that basis, I think there's the possibility of change, but that the USG needs to encourage Joao President Joao Lorenzo, to move forward on a campaign that's anti-corruption and good governance. Um, that would be what my argument would be. Um, there was a time that you stood up, and I'm not talking about a whole lot of years ago, where you could get hurt, you could get killed. That's less the case today, and people are more ready to speak out than they have been in, in, in the past. Um, the U.S. to its credit, um, for example, I would argue the reason that a, a fellow like Rafael Marquez, the well-known journalist and anti-corruption, activist is still alive was because he would come here to this country and he would be received by the Assistant Secretary of State for Africa. The U.S. was saying that this Raphael fellow and his organization of one is an important person 
I wasn't privy to the conversation between the Angolan government and the U.S. government, but I can tell you without fear of reproach, the U.S. expressed their concern about Raphael's health when he had the various trials come up on nebulous charges. He beat them in court, and you never beat anything in court in Angola. So U.S. played a positive role in, in, in that respect. National Endowment of Democracy, for example, was a, a major supporter of, of Raphael. Uh, they provided support to friends of Angola, um, which made it possible for people to begin to raise the, these key issues. These local elections are going to be critical that are coming up now, and USG needs to be supportive of the local elections, the upcoming elections, they need to say there has to be a level playing field. And finally, the thing I would say is that banks, financial institutions, they were very open to working with uh, Isabel Dos Santos. This is no longer the case. Um, audit firms, banks, etc., have said, no, we're not going to work with you anymore. And the reason that they took this position was because of fine investigative work by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Um, I was the ambassador in Angola from 2004 to 2007 and continue to be active with the Anglican Church in Angola, which has supported a lot of work. Uh, especially in Ongiva, but elsewhere, working with women's groups. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, to be fair, Angola has horrible corruption, got it, but it has not had the sort of bloodthirsty repression that many other countries in Africa have had. Now, I know this is awful to say because it sounds like you're t justifying any kind of repression, and I would not want to do that. But certainly, from the time when I was there, except for Raphael, who, as you said, went into and out of the prison systems and we kept him, or he was kept safe, um, there was no one in prison at that time for political crimes. And as the system, as the oil prices went down and they had stolen, Isabella had stolen the sovereign wealth fund and the young people got more and more angry and the civil, there was concern and then there was greater repression and now we're fortunately on another uh, wave of less repression as you've mentioned. And I absolutely agree with everything that you have said about what we can do. A uh, couple things I would just like to say. I think we should be supportive of Joao Lorenzo as he moves forward and encourage him in the rightest direction without being clearly leading. I think the Angolans have shown that they can be uh, responsible with support. We did, they need to have support, you mentioned Treasury to help them uh, there's lots of capacity building that needs to be done, and I don't know where we stand. I'm no longer with the State Department, so I don't know where we are right now. But there is a lot of capacity 
that uh, building that needs to be done in order to underpin good government's efforts. But anyway, I just think that this could be a medium good story if we can indeed work closely with um, the sort of efforts that, thanks to the journalists bringing it to people's attention, is, could go forward now, especially in the municipal elections. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you to all of you for, for doing this. I think it's a, a terrifically interesting issue, and I'm glad you're highlighting it. I think it deserves more attention. Uh, my name is Lester Munson. I work at a lobby firm right now, and I'm here on behalf of a client that's a, that was a victim of corruption in Angola under the DeSantos regime. Uh, it's the Africa Growth Corporation. It's an American company that builds housing. Uh, and they've uh, sought redress under President Lorenzo and haven't received it. There's been the, the corruption is ongoing and they still haven't been made whole. And I don't bring that up necessarily to ask for a specific answer on that case, but more to highlight how much how much real change have we seen. I understand that you know there is there have been some steps taken and some of the <clears throat> revelations we've seen have been positive and in the right direction. But shouldn't we in fact be doing more? Isn't this the opportunity really to maybe demand more of Angola, that Angola, the Angolan government do more for its own people, that it be, not be corrupt, and that there be real changes that can result in a, in a real fresh start in that country. I, I would argue, for example, the plight of, the, of your client's company is going to be a deterrent to other U.S. companies investing there. Um, they need to get their house in order. Um, I'm not talking about bossing anybody around, but we need to be supportive of U.S. businesses that are operating within the laws of Angola and the United States. And we also want to promote foreign direct investment there, not only by U.S. firms, but by firms around the world. And the only way to do that is to improve the situation as it relates to governance and more specifically, corruption. This is the best way, I think, to help the Angolan people at this time. If I could just add, I, <clears throat> so I've been following the, the African World Corporation issue with Angolan government. And, and, and I have to say this, the Angolan has a lot of problem when it comes to property rights. It, it's really, it, it's a big issue. And, 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 and I hope that Angolan government, like uh, Malik said, will be able to solve this issue uh, and so that it's become deterrent uh, and it doesn't happen again. The, and, and, and <laughs> The general that involved, I, I've, I've read, I've spoken with the, uh, the different NGOs, including here in the US. Uh, it's not the first time that happened. The Angolan government, President Lorenzo, actually needs to solve this issue. The problem in Angola is that it's a one-man rule. I mean, let's just be honest here. I, I don't want to quote Sugar. I, I really, I think, it, Sugar quote, I think it's important to be honest here, right? Angolan, is a one-man rule. 
the, the, and that's the problem with some democracies, uh, that so-called democracies. Because it, on the surface, it looks like a real democracy, right? You have a parliament, you have the, uh, you have the presidency, and, and, and you know, you, you have, but in Angola, it's really nothing happened without the consent of the president. Uh, it, it doesn't matter where you are. It, it's, it's Lorenzo is one man rule. Like Dos Santos created, I'm not saying that Lorenzo created the problem. Mr. Lorenzo created the problem. Dos Santos created, and, and Mr. Lorenzo hasn't changed. And it's within the Constitution itself, it's really one man rule. He is, is the one who uh, uh, points almost everyone, including the governors. Uh, Angola has one of the worst uh, political system, even in CPLP. Uh, like Mozambique, the governors, they are elected, I think, uh, semi-elected, but you have local elections. But in Angola is one of the few countries, in Portuguese-speaking countries, where the president is the one indicated governor. We don't have local elections. This is not just thing as local power. It's everything centralized in one place. So, and, and I agree. I mean, it, it, look, look. I, I remember when it's 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 it. We need we need to give work with the president, as Mr. Ambassador said. It's true, but we need really to make sure we push him towards a a a a, a direction where Angolans are are, are gaining something from it. Uh, it's not just Lorenzo consolidating power for himself. Uh, and and, and the, the, the fight against corruption has become the new talking point in a lot of kleptocracy. From Mozambique to, I mean, I remember when Hugo Chavez was uh, running on, 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 on fight against corruption. I don't know if you still remember, but that's what was his thing. Hugo Chavez, when he came to power, I will fight corruption. And we knew, we know what it then became that fight against corruption. President, the former president of Angola, Dos Santos, he declared a fight against corruption. He called a, 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 a tolerance zero, tolerance zero, so against corruption, while he was sucking the country. I mean, I mean it's just. So, so going back to the African government, I hope the, the Angolan government will resolve. It's not a, a unique case in Angola. If you, if you do something, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's just property rights and other issues that we need to deal with, including, including religious rights in Angola. That's also. But my Angola fellows in Cabinda and Lundas, they, they, they still today don't have the same rights as folks in Rwanda. Right now, as we speak, there are more than six activists of the tent since December of 2019 in jail because they were protesting the demanding referendum in Cabinda. Right now, they are there. So, so, so we really have to be careful here. We want to make sure we don't create another beast. We don't, we don't create another DeSantos. Yes, we need to support him, but we need to ask questions and we need to demand more. Um. Right in the middle here, yeah. My name is Jason Hoagland. Um, I spent most of my life on the continent. I grew up in Kinshasa. Um, across Africa, kind of leapfrogging off of your previous comment. Across Africa and in many other countries, the fight against corruption is a very popular fight. It's a very 
popular rallying cry um, and is often used as a way to dismantle the power structures of one's predecessors. Right? Um, it's easy for such a campaign to take apart one's predecessor's uh, power structure and use to consolidate one's own power. And so looking at it from that perspective, what, if anything, makes this case different, possibly more hopeful, um, and what are we doing or what could the United States be doing to make sure that the United States is not playing into or helping uh, President Lorenzo consolidate his own power um, in a way that would be against the interests of the furtherance of democracy in Angola. Thank you. Uh, maybe Kerry can tell us more since your organization has uh, written the report. Maybe the journalists have more to do to expose this kind of corruptions and allegations. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Um, I don't know that I can speak to what the, the U.S. government should do in this particular case, uh, but I do think, as you mentioned, one thing that we saw in a lot of these documents was that a lot of U.S. firms um, or U.K.-based firms, very prominent auditing and consulting firms, were very willing to help uh, Ms. Dos Santos with her business empire. So I think to kind of avoid that situation in the future, whether it's with the current administration in Angola or um, other countries that have struggled with corruption, uh, perhaps there, there need to be some changes in terms of um, whether what kinds of questions you have to ask before you're taking on a client who has been linked to corruption. Well, uh, thank you, Fakudad. Um, um, I, I mean, so it, it kind of reminds me during the Cold War, everyone becomes a pro-democracy. Mabutu Seseko, I think you remember him uh, in, from Azair. <laughs> he became a very democratic man because he was looking for support, and and he ended up he was a crook, right? We knew that. I mean, really, dictator, blood, dictator. Uh, <clears throat> so, I I I think these new uh, talking points about the fight against corruption corruption uh, needs to be. We need to look. Uh, um, we have to be skeptical. Yes, we need to embrace, but we have to be skeptical. And we need to answer questions. We have to ask a lot of questions. The problem where we're having today in Angola is that everyone's talk about almost everyone except Lorenzo. People don't ask questions to Lorenzo. The same thing we did to De Santos, right? So we don't ask questions. The, for instance, the XX, um, ESXX report, uh, report, they accused Mr. Lorenzo of uh, giving a public um, uh, <clears throat> bidding to some uh, Egyptian company, telecom, if my memory serves me well, they don't, right? Uh, and, and so no one in the media, journalists in Angola, have asked Mr. Lorenzo, can you, can you elaborate more on that? Can you give us some information? Today, the parliament cannot investigate, uh, cannot ask questions to executive power. Because during Luis Santo, and to be fair, it wasn't during Lawrence Lorenzo, during Luis Santo, they, the MPLA passed a, a, a coordinate document to prohibit the parliament uh, to monitor or ask questions to the executive power. So Mr. Lorenzo has the book check, he can, he can write as many checks as he wants, uh, and no one can ask questions. So, I mean, 
And the other issue is lack of transparency, right? We really don't know, the President's lawyers have never really disclosed how much money he has. So it's hard to us to tell whether he's profiting from presidency or not, because we don't know how much he has. Does he, does he have $100? $100 billion? No one knows. So the lack of transparency is the, the issue, the core issue, within these uh, waves of, 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 of uh, skepticism within Angola that we, we, we think, we say, well, you want to fight corruption, but you need to be more open, you need to tell us, where's the money? So you will say you have recovered money, where's the money, what are you going to do with the money? They don't be open, they don't be transparent, so it's hard to tell. And if I, if I were President Lorenzo, and if he really is, is, has the will to fight corruption, then one thing I would ask is him to be more, more trans transparent. That's what I would ask. I would ask him to tell how much money he has, what is his asset. No one is going to put him in jail. It's the president of Angola, the constitution uh, protects him. But just tell us how much money you have. And, and, and stop uh, engaging all pack deals when it comes to public funds. That's what I would do. I, I'd like to make, make a statement here. We need to hold Juan Lorenzo accountable. We need more transparency. But I would make a wager here that if one were to check the present bank account of Mr. Lorenzo, He's low income compared to the fellow who gave the piggy bank, the state oil corporation, signing gold to his daughter, and the sovereign wealth fund to his son. Um, the ability to maneuver Joao Lorenzo, one of the reasons, in my, my humble opinion, I've looked at the country for more than 40 years, that um, President Dos Santos stepped down was because it was becoming too difficult. He needed an off-ramp. Joao Lorenzo hold him accountable, but Joao Lorenzo is not equal right now. Jose Eduardo Dos Santos. That would be what my, my argument would be. And that the U.S. government needs to engage. They need to be supportive of democracy and governance work there. If you look at the democracy and governance budget, unless it went up yesterday, <laughs> um, too little money. You had critical elections coming up. U.S. needs to be involved on that, on that level. We, we have an opportunity for democratization, for transparency to be advanced in Angola. And I'm not for a moment think that this will be easy, but we are at a place where it's more possible now than it would have been two years ago, three years ago. And clearly, uh, more of a possibility with Lorenzo there as opposed to uh, President Jose Eduardo Santos. Well, thank you so much, uh, Shaka, for these uh, remarks. And uh, please, well, I guess we have one more question. Okay. Who, who has the question? Okay. 
Um, Ambassador, please. Yeah, just two quick things. One is I did not mean that we should support Joao Lorenzo. We need to support a panoply of political, civil society, religious forces. But to the extent that they can lead and we can support, we being the U.S., it's much better. So that was my point that. But the other thing is I think since this is an educational organization, we have to become much more sophisticated in the way we think about corruption. Because we throw massive corruption, Isabel Dos Santos, in the same category as a nurse who takes a little bit extra in order to get better treatment to one patient than the other. And I think that we need to become more sophisticated in the way we talk about corruption so that we can uh, assist the countries in combating it. Sorry. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Well, with that, uh, please uh, join me in giving a round of applause, a very warm one, to uh, Florindo, Kira, and Shaka, and to yourselves. And thank you so much. <laughs> please stay tuned for our next events. And uh, continue the dialogue after this, please. Thanks.